This exercise that I want us to do is going to be a little bit difficult and challenging, but I promise you, I think you'll appreciate the end of the lesson more if you participate in this beginning exercise. I want you to think about, no matter how old you are, what stage of life you're in, I want you to think about the worst thing you think you've ever done, the worst sin you've ever committed. And I know that's painful to bring up those memories. Maybe it's something that happened a long time ago. Maybe it's something that happened fairly recently. But I want you to think about it for a minute. I want you to dwell on it for just a second. I want you to think about the guilt and the shame that you felt after after you did whatever it is that you did or said whatever it is that you said. I want you to think about for a second how it impacted the people in your life, the people that you love the most. I want you to even think about the ripple effects that went out from that decision that impacted people, maybe people that didn't even really know specifically what changed or what happened, but whether they knew it or not, your decision impacted them. We can all relate to those things, can't we? Every single one of us can relate to that. We've made decisions, not just one, unfortunately, but several that have impacted ourselves things that we've felt guilty about and things that we've been ashamed of, things that have impacted the people in our life, the people that we love the most. And and then I want you to kind of rewind from that decision to just before it, maybe days before it, maybe moments before it. Did you argue with yourself? Did you think, no, I, I shouldn't, I shouldn't? Did you weigh the cost a little bit and say, this is going to hurt somebody. This is, this is going to be bad. This isn't going to end well. Did you struggle with it? Did you fight against it? Maybe you fought against it for an hour. Maybe you fought against it for a day. Maybe you fought against it for weeks. Maybe, maybe it was just a moment, an impulse, and you gave into it. And we all wish we could, we could go back, don't we? Knowing what we know now, go back and not do that thing. We can't. You might put it in terms, I think that this metaphor or this idea or this picture is biblical, that of a, of a serpent's bite. And we've all struggled with the serpent and we've lost. Isn't that true? We've all struggled with the serpent and we've lost. The serpent tempted us and tested us and we struggled with it and we lost, and the venom of the serpent has infected not only our own lives, but it has infected our relationships. But it's not just us who have fallen victim to the serpent and his poison, it is the entire world. The entire world. All of the sons of man, all of the sons and daughters of man have fallen victim to the serpent's bite. Our relationships are affected by the serpent. Our health, our lives, we die because of the venom of the serpent. And and you can think back to these biblical stories, can't you? It all began in the garden, didn't it? And it began with with the the man, Adam, Adam, not the son of man, but man. And the mother of all mankind, Eve. And it began with the serpent who told them lies. You won't. You won't surely die. God just doesn't want you to eat it because he doesn't want you to know what he knows and to be like him, but you eat this fruit and your life's going to change for the better. And you're going to be like God. 
He told them lies, and God's people believed the lies, and then they were infected with the serpent's venom. He didn't literally bite them, but his influence affected everything. It broke their relationship, not just with God, but with each other. Do you see how it happened? God shows up on the scene and he says, what happened? Did you eat the fruit I told you not to eat? And they start blaming each other. And they start blaming God. It's the woman you gave me. It's her fault. And you gave her to me. Do you see how the the serpent infects and affects everything in our lives? And, And then we have another story in Numbers chapter 21. The children of Israel experience another serpent moment. They're out in the wilderness, and and the serpent tells them lies. You don't have any food to eat. The truth is that they had food to eat. They just didn't like the food they had to eat. Moses brought you out here in the wilderness to die. He doesn't love you. He doesn't care about you. You're all going to die out here in the wilderness. That's all a bunch of lies. But the serpent lies, and then God's people believe the lies, and then they're infected with the serpent's venom. In this case, both metaphorically and Quite literally, fiery serpents came and and bit them. But in both cases, as with Adam and Eve in the garden and with the children of Israel in the wilderness, God is not content to let his people die from the serpent's bite. Do you remember when, when God told Adam and Eve the consequences of their sin? He said that a son would come and crush the serpent's head. Do you remember and crush the serpent's head. And then in in the book of Numbers, when they're bitten by these fiery serpents and the people start to die, God tells Moses to put a bronze serpent on a pole so that everyone who looks at the serpent would live, right? Because God is not content to let his people die from the serpent's bite. And that's the good news for you. And that's the good news for me. Even though you and I have wrestled with the serpent and we lost, we've wrestled with the serpent and we've lost. And he has infected and affected so many things in our life. And because of him, we should die. God is not content to let you die from the serpent's bite. Isn't that good news? God loves you so much. He's not willing to let you die. He wants to change that. So John chapter 3 and verse 1. If you got your Bible, John chapter 3 and verse 1. We talked about Jesus, the Son of Man, and we talked about some of the Old Testament passages like Psalm 8 and Daniel 7 that teach us about who the sons and daughters of man are, who the Son of Man is. And that eventually Daniel saw a picture of a son of man being exalted to God's right hand and being worshipped by mankind. And Jesus calls himself that son of man. But he also now intertwines it with the story from Numbers chapter 21 about the serpents in the wilderness. Look at John 3. Now he's having this conversation, you probably remember, with Nicodemus. There was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these, th- these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, 
We've talked about this story before, so I won't go into great detail, but Nicodemus is, is claiming to be able to see the truth, isn't he? He's saying, Jesus, all of us smart people, all of us great theologians, all of us great teachers of the law, we can see, we see, we see that you must be from God because no one can do these signs unless God is with him. Verse 3, Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus says, nobody can do what you do unless they're from God. And Jesus says, no, 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 let me tell you what no one can do. No one can even see the kingdom of God, what God is doing in the world, unless he is, what, born again. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So there's a second thing. You can't see what God is doing in the world, and you can't enter into what God is doing in the world unless you are reborn. Unless the Spirit changes you, unless you're born of the water, baptism, and the Spirit Unless you experience this rebirth, this recreation, you can't see, much less be a part of and enter into what God is doing. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you don't know where it's coming from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. All around Nicodemus... The world is changing, and there's all of these people beginning to follow Jesus, and they can say, something, something is going on here, but Jesus is not so subtly telling him, you, you really don't see it, do you? You really don't get it, do you? You don't see what the Spirit is doing, and you can't see. You can't see what God is doing in the world, and you can't enter into it and be a part of it unless you're willing to be born again by the water and the spirit so Nicodemus said to him how can these things be and Jesus answered him are you the teacher of Israel and yet you don't understand these things truly truly I say to you we speak and I think Jesus kind of means the the royal we right I think he he specifically means himself we we speak of what we know and we bear witness to what we have seen but you don't receive our testimony if I've told you of earthly things and you don't believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? I've told you about the stuff that's happening right here. I've told you about the earthly things that are happening right here, that there are people that see and are entering into the kingdom of God, but you don't get it, and you don't believe it, and you don't hear it, and you don't see it, and you don't understand it, and it's happening here on the earth right in front of you. But if I tell you of heavenly things, how, how are you going to understand that if you don't even understand this? How are you going to see that if you don't see this? The heavenly things are the things that are unseen, the things that are behind the veil. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Now, on the one hand, Jesus is saying, I'm the only one who can speak authoritatively about the things going on in heaven. Why? because I'm the only one that's been there, right? Nobody else has been to heaven and can tell you about the things in heaven. I'm the only one that's been there. But it's, it's really interesting, see, that Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. 
And we, we sometimes we get so used to Jesus saying the Son of Man, the Son of Man, the Son of Man to refer to himself. But if you think back to Daniel chapter 7, and you think about what Daniel saw in his vision, it's really kind of bizarre here the way Jesus uses that phrase. Because Jesus is saying the Son of Man descended from heaven. Right? He came from heaven. But in the Daniel 7 picture, it's not the Son of Man descending from heaven. It's the Son of Man ascending to heaven to represent mankind in the throne room of God. Right? So which is it? Has the Son of Man descended or the Son of Man ascends? Yes, it's both, isn't it? And so often when you read the Gospel of John, that's the answer. It's both. It's both. The Son of Man both is the one who represents heaven on earth, and he's the one to represent man in heaven. If you, if you want to be represented in heaven, there's only one to represent you. If you want a mediator between you and God, there's only one to mediate, and that's Jesus, the Son of Man. But if you want to know about heaven, and you want to know about the mind of God, what does God think? What is God like? Who is God? That's a question human beings have always struggled with. That's a question you struggle with when you know that you've sinned. Who is God? What does God think of me? What will God do with me? Does God love me? The only one who can answer those questions is Jesus. He's the only one that represents heaven on earth and the only one who represents earth in heaven. Isn't that what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 10? That's Jesus' mission to reconcile all things in heaven and on earth. And so Jesus is both the Son of Man who has descended from heaven and the one who will ascend to heaven. Verse 14, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, you see the Daniel 7 type language? The Son of Man lifted up, right? Lifted up to save and to represent human beings. But now he also ties that in with Numbers 21. And all of the people were dying from the serpent's bite. And Moses lifted up a bronze serpent on the pole. And they all looked to the serpent and they trusted in God and they lived. And Jesus says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, does Jesus mean, does Jesus mean lifted up as in his ascension, lifted up to the right hand of God, or does he mean lifted up on the cross as he does in John chapter 12? Again, I think the answer is both. It's both. Jesus is going to be lifted up on the cross and then lifted up above the earth through the cross, be lifted up above the earth to represent human beings. But do you see that picture that he's saying? This is why the Son of Man is being lifted up on the cross to crush the head of the serpent, to be like the serpent raised up on the stake in the wilderness, that whoever looks upon him, whoever believes in him, might live. And here he says, might have what kind of life? Eternal life. That word literally means for the age. For the age to come. The only way to have life in the age to come is to look to Jesus, the Son of Man, 
who's lifted up on the cross. Why? Because God was not content to let his people die from the serpent's bite. God was not willing to let the people in the wilderness die. They, they kind of deserved it, didn't they? And so do we. We kind of deserved it, don't we? But God is not content to let you die from the serpent's influence. He's not content to continue to let our relationships decay and deteriorate because of the serpent's influence. So Jesus, the Son of Man, came down to represent heaven to us so we would know who God is and how God feels about us and what God is willing to do to save us. And then he's lifted up on the cross and to the right hand of the Father that we might look to him and believe in him and thereby might have eternal life. Verse 16. And maybe this is Jesus continuing his monologue, continuing to talk to Nicodemus, or maybe this is John saying these things, reflecting on who Jesus is. But he says this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And John and Jesus want us to see all of those images. They want us to hear Psalm chapter 8. What is the Son of Man? What are, what are human beings? When you consider the, the universe and the cosmos and the planets and all of these beauty and the glory of the heavens, what are human beings that you care about us? We're maggots. We're nothing. We're tiny microscopic beings on this rock that's floating around the sun, and yet you love us and you make covenant with us, and when we wrestle with the serpent and we lose, you still say, I'm not willing to let you go. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him, just like the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, whoever would look to the bronze serpent might not perish, but might have life. That's how much he loves you. He's not willing to let you die without giving his son so that you might have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God is not content to let you die. You want to know about God? You want to know good theology? That's good theology right there. God is not willing to let you go. He's not content to let you go. Now, if, if you choose to reject him, that's your choice. But he's not content with that choice. He's not content to let you die from the serpent's bite. He loves you so much that he gave his only son that you might live. And, and, and then when we believe in him and we're baptized into him, born again by the water and the spirit, we're, we're healed people. Just like Israel in the wilderness, we're healed we're healed. We're bitten but healed. That's the phrase I've been thinking about all week. Bitten but healed. That, when you ask me how I'm doing, I might start saying that. I'm bitten but healed. You know, I wrestled with the serpent and I lost. Big time. My relationships, my life, my health, 
my past, my present, my future have all been affected by the fact that I allowed myself to fall victim to the serpent's influence. And I am bitten, but I am healed. Because God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. And I've looked to him and believed in him and put my trust in him and by him and through him, I am healed. So the question of the gospel is, how should bitten but healed people live their lives? If you put yourself in those Israelites' position and you think about they got bitten by these serpents and they were dying and then they looked to the, the, the sculpture that had been created for them and then they were healed, how should they live in light of that truth? How should you and I live in light of the truth that we are bitten but healed people? Well, I think, number one, more wisely, with wisdom, being wise to the schemes of the serpent. I mean, what a shame it would be if I allowed myself to fall victim in the exact same ways over and over and over and over and over again. Shouldn't the fact that we are bitten but healed people make us wiser people to say, I'm not falling for that one again. I may fall for something else, but I'm not falling for that one again. I'm not going to go down that road again. I've done it, I've seen it, I've been there, I understand it, I've, I've felt the pain of it, and I'm wiser now because of it. Shouldn't bitten but healed people be wiser than they were before? Not willing to make the same mistakes again. Number two, how about grateful and obedient to the one who has healed us? You know, sometimes we balk at the exclusivity of the gospel, especially as presented in John. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And in our kind of pluralistic, there's lots of ways to get to God world that we live in, we kind of balk at this idea of Jesus saying, I am the way. But why should sick people complain that there's only one cure to their disease? Why should sick people say, but... That's not fair. There should be lots of cures. Instead of saying, thank you that there's a cure. Thank you that even though I've been bitten, there's an antidote to the bite. God says, I love each and every one of you so incredibly much that I'm going to give you an antidote to the venom with which you've been infected. We should be overflowing with gratitude and obedience to Jesus, saying, I belong to you because through you and through your sacrifice and through your love, I live. I live now and I will live in the age to come. But how about this as well? Compassionate. Compassionate towards others who have been bitten. I mean, can you imagine the, the Israelites in the wilderness? Somebody gets bitten and they're dying, and then they look to the bronze serpent, and they're healed, and then they look over at their buddy who's been bitten, and they say, I can't believe you. Some people getting bitten. Don't you know better than get bit by a snake? Just watch out for snakes next time. I can't believe you got bitten. That's so ridiculous. It's all your fault. I can't believe you did that. No. What are you talking about? You got bitten too. And that's exactly how we are sometimes, isn't it? We're bitten but healed people. We've made huge mistakes. We've gone down the road, the wrong road, more times than we can count. 
And yet we have the audacity to look at others in our neighborhood and in our world and shake our finger at them and say, I can't believe the choices you've made. Shouldn't the fact that we are bitten but healed people make us incredibly compassionate to say, I know what it is. I know what it is to go down the wrong road. I know what it is to make big mistakes. I know what it is to just be foolish because I've done it more times than I'd like to admit. But I'm healed. Because John 3.16 doesn't say, for God so loved you so much that he gave his only begotten son. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He loves your neighbor He loves your silly, messed up, foolish neighbor more than you love your kids. Isn't that true? He loves your enemy more than you love your friends. He loves more deeply, more passionately, more sacrificially than you and I could even imagine. And and we ought to take that compassion for our neighbor. That humility that says, I've been there, and I've done it, and if not for the grace of God, I'd still be there. Being bitten but healed people means we ought to be wiser and more grateful and more compassionate than we were before. So here's our moment of truth question. How will you live as a bitten but healed person this week? Remembering the fact that you've been bitten, but also embracing the fact that you've been healed. No more, no more living in shame. No more wallowing in in the shame and the guilt that we had before. We've been healed and we're never going to embrace the gratitude and the joy and the enthusiasm and the passion and the zeal that comes along with being healed unless we admit it and we embrace it. But nor are we gonna be as compassionate as we need to be if we're not willing to admit and understand and keep at the forefront of our minds, we've made a lot of bad decisions. We've wrestled with the serpent and we've lost, but because God loves us so much, we are healed. So let's go out into the world this week and let's live that way. Let's be that kind of people. But maybe there's somebody here this morning and you're not yet healed and you're ready to be, to be born again by the water and the spirit, to look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our salvation and our faith, and to trust him to heal you from the serpent's bite because he is the crusher of the serpent. And if we can help you to put Jesus on in baptism or we can pray with you, encourage you in anything this morning, won't you come forward now as we stand and sing?